1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. We're continuing our walk through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so far, in the first four chapters, Paul says that there are basically two ways to live life. The way of the world and the way of the cross. And the way of the world is completely self-interested. It's me first, others second, if that, if it ever gets to that point of others. And God third. The way of the cross turns that upside down. It's God first, others second, I'm third. And those walking in the way of the cross are not only saved by that cross, but they're shaped by that cross. That's Paul's big argument. He's saying, like Jesus, we win as a community and as individuals by losing. Like Jesus, we succeed by laying everything down. Growth happens through death. Now, this is not, as you can imagine, a popular message. So Paul admits as much in the first four chapters. He says the way of the cross, both being saved by it and being shaped by it, is foolishness to anyone who is not saved by that cross. If we're living an I'm first life, then the way of the cross is completely foolish and weak. But those of us who have tasted the forgiveness and the freedom of the cross, we find power at the foot of the cross. True power. So this morning, what Paul is doing is he's applying the way of the cross to the community life of the church. And Corinth was a small cadre of of new believers, smaller even than our church. And we know from experience that just because you're saved by Jesus does not mean that all of your issues in life go away. Amen? If anything, it reveals issues. And so Paul looks at the church and he sees some areas that still look like the way of the world. And what he wants to do is he wants the community to resemble more and more the way of the cross. And so let's just read our text this morning. You can follow along. This is God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. With the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And would we see Jesus and him crucified and would our hearts sing? 
at that site. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. One of the best things about living in the city, and I can say this with authority because I didn't grow up in a big city, I grew up in a smaller place in Indiana, is the abundance of medical care in this city. I mean, there's, I mean, I know a lot of you are in the medical profession. There is an abundance of medical care in the city. And here's the thing. It's good care. It's like top quality. It's like the best in the world. In fact, I, wa- I lived a two-minute walk from my doctor. That's crazy. And it's not just like a doc in the box. It's not to disrespect doc in the boxes. I use them all the time. Our kids have about 18 stitches if you add them all up. But I go to this, the doctor, the Wexner Center, the OSU Medical Center. And so what I do is I walk in there and I'm thinking, I have the best of the best and the latest. And so I love it. I feel confident there. And it's all amazing. But there's one thing, I'm just going to be honest before you, that I struggle with. And it's this newfangled thing called my care. Who has my care? Anybody? Okay, my care. It's this online kind of presence that, our, that, that my doctors use. And it's a great thing. They remind me of my appointments, all kinds of things. I can look at my records. But, and here's the but, when you get a medical test done, they send you the results like immediately. And there's a little clause underneath that says, by the way, your doctor probably hasn't even seen this test result. And so this thing sits in my inbox and it like stares me down. I'm terrified by the thing. You know, I already have a bad addiction to WebMD and I know that's not a good idea. And so here they are. They're saying, here, read these results. You don't know what they mean. And then try to decipher them on WebMD. This is a great idea. There it is. For someone like me who likes to ignore problems, you know, this is a person who can ignore terrible sounds from the hood of my car for months. <laughs> this is a terrible thing. I don't want to know what's in my blood and what could be wrong with me. And here's the truth. I would rather trash this email than know what's in it. I would rather ignore difficult truths about myself than face them. And I just kind of wonder if that's something you can resonate with. I just wonder if I'm alone in that reality. I think a lot of us, if not all of us, would rather pretend everything is okay. Instead of face what is wrong with us. Therapists have this great word for this tendency. When we don't face our problems, we narcotize. I love that word. We narcotize. We drug ourselves. We, we numb out and so we can't feel or care or see our issues and our problems. And our drug of choice varies, doesn't it? I mean, for some of us, it's alcohol and substances, and that does the trick. For others, it's food or distraction. I have this supercomputer in my pocket that does the trick. If you want to be distracted in life, I can give you a few tips and tricks with your phone. 
we can go to work and narcotize our lives with work. Even religion. And the Corinthian church was doing this. They were numbing themselves from their problems. Paul says in verse 1, if you take your eyes down to the text, that there was sexual immorality in the church. And that it was not only scandalous in God's eyes, with God's sort of vision for human sexuality, but even in the culture's eyes. Apparently a man was living and sleeping with his stepmother. That's what it says in verse 2. And instead of facing this in a godly, restorative way, this young church was, according to verse 2, arrogant or boasting, almost proud of it. In verse 6, your boasting is not good. Again, almost proud of this. Like, we can live with this. This is okay. But this is a misunderstanding of the work of Jesus. See, these new Christians were saying, in Christ we are free from these issues. In Christ, and what Christ is bringing, the newness of who Christ is and, and His grace, means that we are above these kind of insignificant issues like who is sleeping with who. These kinds of issues like sin or attitudes that are unchecked. You know, we're above that. We're beyond that. But again, this is a misunderstanding of the work of Jesus, Paul would say, because Jesus loves you exactly as you are and always will, but He also restores. His work in the cross is a saving work. It's a rescuing work. It's also a restoring work. The Spirit of Jesus restores you into His image. And what that means is that the Spirit is going to reveal things in your life and by the help of people in your life. And we are going to walk in newness and change. He transforms His people. Which, mean, which means that God does care about how we live. God specifically does care that there is a man who is with his stepmom. See, the main problem that Paul sees in this church, though, is he doesn't laser focus so much on this man. He highlights it and he acknowledges it as sin as such. But what he really gives his attention to in this text are the Corinthians, the church around this man. The church around this man were not bothered by it. It didn't keep them up at night. They were asleep to it. And this, to me, is challenging for all of us today. We too are asleep to sin. And so we need to listen carefully uh, to what God says this morning from His Word. Uh, The most dangerous thing that we can do is to narcotize or to numb out or to ignore or to minimize our sin. The image that Paul uses in this passage is leaven. Leaven is impossible to see, but its impact is a million times bigger. Uh, When I brewed beer in seminary, yes, let that sink in. Um, The most important ingredient in the whole process was this stuff called oxyclean. 
Okay, so what is OxyClean? Well, it's a sanitizer. You have to constantly sanitize your hands, the kitchen, the vessels, or else your batch would get skunked, we would say. Bacteria would enter into whatever you're making and ruin it. And unless you're making yogurt, that's not a good thing. And God is telling us that when we fall asleep to sin, it can skunk the church. Notice, Paul is disturbed by the sinning man, but he is also disturbed by the community for falling asleep to it. And he alerts them that sin is not merely a personal thing, but a communal thing. And what is Paul's answer? He says, be a community of the cross. He's going to wake us up with the smelling salt of Jesus in this text. And his pastoral advice is rooted in the cross of Christ. And so we're going to think about two things this morning. A community not just saved by the cross, but shaped by the cross will do two things. They will stay awake to the reality. They will stay awake to the danger. They will stay awake to sin. And in particular, sin that we are asleep to or ignoring or not repenting of. And the second thing a community shaped by the cross does is they witness to God's grace. They bear witness to the watching world about God's grace. And so let's look at those two things together. The first is this. We are awake to sin. A community of the cross is not asleep, but awake to it. So we believe our sin is the biggest problem we have. That's what a community of the cross does. We just frankly say, what is the biggest issue in my life? It's the stuff going on in my life. It's the ways that I hurt others. It's the way that I put my foot against God's good ways. It's the way I am actually being a sinner. That is my biggest problem. And it's for three things. This text really alerts us to three reasons why this is so. The first is this. Because ignored sin is critical. And I'm using this word critical like a hospital would. The problem is that we tend to view our sin problem as fair or stable. Like we're like we're yeah, yeah, I know that I know that, that we sin from time to time, but it, but it's within normal limits. But what Paul is talking about is he's using the most dangerous terms possible. What he's saying is if you are making peace with your sin and not fighting it, hard as that fight may be, if you're making peace with it, you are in danger, here it says, of being removed from the flock of Jesus. The flock of Jesus which has his care. The flock of Jesus that has his protection. The flock of Jesus that has his promise of eternal life. And where do you go if you're not in that flock? Well, Paul has this no man's land over which Satan, the enemy, has reign. And do you see it? When you look at verses 2 through 5, you see what it is about. You have no protection or promise to keep you safe eternally outside of his flock. And so these verses, 2 through 5, is about a person in their church who has made peace with their sin. And is choosing not to fight sin. And Jesus talks about this in his Gospels in Matthew. He says, if someone is sinning, you talk to them, you go to them one on one. Graciously. Because you yourself are a sinner. You're not in a moral high ground when you do this. 
And then you, if, if this person's like, yeah, I hear you, but I, I don't know, then you bring some friends. And if that's still, they still are resolute in what they're doing, then you tell the church, Jesus says. And if in all these patient and gracious interactions, the person still persists, then then and only then, and with great patience and with great care, Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us, to remove the person from the fellowship. Why? This is important. Not to punish, but to restore. Churches never discipline sin. Only unrepentant sin. Do you see the difference? If, if they just disciplined sin, then there would be no church. The church is a hospital for sinners. No, churches discipline hardness. The dogged refusal to repent of sin. Because repentance is the mark of a Christian. Repentance. It's a softness of heart that hears a brother or sister when they come to them and says, you know what, I didn't see this, but you see this, and I respect that you see this, and that is some heavy, heavy words, and so let me reflect on this, and there's a sensitivity there, and a willingness to fight. Okay, I see that this isn't right, I'm going to fight, will you help me? That's the mark of a believer. On the other hand, there's a sense of like, no, 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 no. And repeated steps, repeated tearful steps of no. And it's a dangerous place to be. Again, why is Paul saying these hard-edged words? Well, he's saying it to restore that this person might return to the fold. And that's why Paul says in our text that this man might be saved in verse 5. When he wakes up and repents. The other reason why we say that we are awake to sin is because when ignored sin is ignored, when sin is ignored, the effects are communal, not just personal. We live under the Western myth that we are all islands. This Edward Hopper picture, and a lot of Edward Hopper's pictures just point out how in the modern West we sort of live alone. And we can think about life in terms of our individuality. Individualism is a good thing, but when gone to an extreme, when we become mere individuals, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. When what we do is only our business. You stay out of mine, I'll stay out of yours. But God says that we are created as communal creatures. Uh, We are made in the image of a triune community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means that when we make peace with sin, it impacts everyone we're connected to. In ways that might be invisible even to the eye but are real nonetheless. And I've seen this happen over and over again in my life. My own sin and the sins of others. There's a third reason. A community of the cross is awake to sin. is because ignored sin is contradictory. It's contradictory. What I mean is this, one of the most important reasons in this text that Paul wants to wake up the church to sin is because it is contradictory to their identity. 
who they are declared they are by God. So we are a community that exists to proclaim the excellencies of God. And Paul himself is saying over and over again, I am concerned about your witness to the world. And so if we are to fall asleep to sin, like these Corinthians do, then we are telling a lie about God and ourselves to the community in which we live and do ministry. If you see in verse 1, he's concerned about how he calls it the pagan world, or the Gentile world, or those who aren't in the church view the world. And then in verse 8, he's saying, this is not who you are. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And what he says right above that passage is he says, why are you doing this? Because you really are unleavened. Verse 7 is the engine for verse 8. Verse 7 says you are unleavened. That is who you are. That's who you're declared to be. You are God's Passover people. Therefore, become who you are declared to be. And when we are asleep to our sin and sort of making peace with sin, then what we are proclaiming to those in our lives around us is somebody that we're not. Sinners saved by grace is who we are. It's a contradiction. And so for all of these reasons, we must stay awake to the problem of sin. Our own sin. And the sins of the community. And this is unpopular today. Incredibly unpopular because it feels harsh. It feels even bigoted. But if sin is really as destructive as Paul makes it out to be here, the question I have is, is it really? So this email is recent. And I actually recently got blood work done. And let's just say this blood work comes back with some serious concerns. One scholar says, we would never call a doctor bigoted or judgmental for telling their patient about a disease that could kill them. No, no, no. We would praise them, wouldn't we? Because now we have a diagnosis. Now we know what to fight and how to fight it. We need to be alert and awake to sin. God, the Spirit is going to do this in your individual life and as a community. And so let's not narcotize ourselves. Let's not drug ourselves and numb ourselves down because that is not sober living. And there is a sobriety that comes with following the Spirit and being sensitive being sensitive to Him calling out areas in your life that are dangerous. I mean, narcotizing the movement of the Spirit in this way, or the words of a, of a patient and, and generous and gentle brother or sister in your life, numbing yourself to that would be like me deleting this email. There's another reason, though, why we, what a community of the cross does, and it's this. We are not just awake to sin, but we are a witness to grace. 
We are a witness to grace. In a passage like this, it's easy to only see the sharp edges, right? And it's very easy then to miss the grace of God. But the grace of God, I hinted at it earlier, is really the engine of this passage and Paul's argument. And there's two things that Paul would say to us this morning, that God would say to you this morning, that speaks and proclaims of God's grace. And the first one is this, no sin is too bad. We see in verse 2 the word remove, and we see the, the phrase give to Satan, and, and that seems like the end game. But that's misreading the text. It's important to notice the reason or the hope in this text that this person might be saved, that this person might be rescued. This means that there is no sin that is bad enough to just forever damn you. And some of us might be living with this idea that my, my history, my track record, what I've done, what I failed to do is just constantly condemning you. It's like a voice in the back of your heart and your mind saying it's too bad and you have no confidence And you have no assurance. But you can always, and when you return to the Lord, immediately, you can have assurance. God doesn't want perfect Christians. He wants repentant Christians. So no sin is too bad. And the other witness to grace, see, first of all, let me just, before I move on, that is one of our most important witnesses. Is proclaiming that reality to the world. And how sad is it that most people who think of church, who think of Christians, they don't think that at all. They think, well, I'm not good enough to enter into this assembly. And the reality is none of us are. We're just a concoction of needy sinners saved by grace. And then I think the second thing we would say here is this. No sin defines us. So Paul is not just a theologian, but he was a poet. And so he uses this common image but a very potent image of the Passover in verses 6 through 8. Some of you, as I was reading this aloud, might have been like, where are you going, Paul? Like, what, what does Passover have to do with this? What does leaven have to do with this? Well, according to Paul, it has everything to do with this. The Passover, just as a refresher, meant one thing in the minds of those who would hear this uh, in those days. Freedom. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from the slavery of Egypt. God delivered Israel from slavery on the first Passover. And they made bread without leaven. Without the rising agent. Because it takes a while for bread to rise. And God was saying, when I call you to leave in this great rescue, you won't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And so make your bread without leaven. And more than that, you sacrifice a lamb. And you spread his blood on the doorposts of your house. And you are covered, therefore, by that blood. And by being covered by the blood, God and the, and the angel of death passes over you and your house. And Paul says that Passover lamb always was pointing to Jesus. He says, for Christ, in verse 7, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It's finished. It's complete. That is Jesus. God's wrath passes over every person who is covered by his blood. And more than that, Jesus rescues you from slavery. And so because of this, Paul says, your entire life is a Passover festival. All of it. He says in verse 8, let's 
Therefore, celebrate the festival. He describes our Christian life and our community life as a festival, as a, as a celebration of Passover, the once and for all sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Jesus. We live in light of that. Did you know that to this day, Jewish men and women will scrape their kitchens clean in the Passover, which was recently, in order to remember the original Passover. And Paul uses this image of leaven and says, you already are clean. You are unleavened. This is your identity. You are declared this way. This means no sin can define you. Do you understand? Paul is not defining the church by their sins of which there are many. He's defining the church by the work of Jesus. That's the definition that he wants them to have. And so he simply is like, hey, if that is who you are, then live into that. Live into what you already are declared to be. You see, your true self in Christ is clean and pure. Do you believe that? Who you are in Christ is clean and pure and unleavened. Notice Paul doesn't say become clean. He says you already are. Now, as a community, we just must act like it. And when we fail, not if we fail, our soft hearts turn back to Jesus. And so we are a testimony of God's grace as a community. And this is how the church can witness to God's grace. We are awake to our sin. We take it so seriously, but we fight it differently than religion. Religion fights sin with resolve. And with shame, mainly. I don't like how this makes me look. I don't like how this makes me feel. And therefore, I'm going to fight this. But the way that Paul would recommend we fight our sin, not recommend really, just say this is the way Christ followers do it, is to simply remember that we are God's Passover people. We are clean already. This sin does not condemn me. And from this posture, we can now fight it differently. We fight it from a posture of full acceptance from God. God is calling us to become who He has declared us to be. I have a guitar that I got in high school, and I am excited to pass this guitar down to one of my boys. Whichever one shows the most interest. Right now, Lou is winning. But here's the thing. They can't play it. It's too big. They simply need to grow into it. But it is theirs. Do you understand? It is theirs. I have a sabbatical coming up. My wife and I are taking, we're taking a sabbatical over the summer. There is a rest ahead of us that has been given to us by the church. I, I don't mean manufacture that rest. My, 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 my job is to, is to lean into it and to, and to receive it. And the same way is with our walk with Christ. Our job is not to manufacture our salvation or assurance. Our job is simply to receive it and to live into it. It's a whole different way of fighting sin. 
A cross-shaped community is a witness to grace because we take sin seriously. But grace is mild when our view of sin is mild. When we see sin for all of its danger, we see grace for all its glory. And so be honest. I think that's what Paul is encouraging all of us to do. He's saying to us, be honest. Don't narcotize yourself to your sin, the sin of others. Be honest. Bring all of who you are to God. Here's the thing. A lot of us come to God and we come with our defenses up and we hide things from Him. But when we do that, don't you realize you you are not receiving His perfect love in those areas? What if you just were honest with yourself and honest before God and you came to Him in what David Benner calls an undefended posture? What if you came to him in an undefended posture where you said, I give up my defenses and here are all the ways. And it's in that place that God loves you and accepts you. So be honest, but then be loved. Hear God say over you, you are unleavened. You are Pure in Christ. You are right now declared to be a child of God. You are a friend of God, not his enemy. These are things that you are, friends. You are right in God's sight. You are a co heir with Jesus. You are a saint. You are declared a saint because of Jesus. You are the temple, all of us, in whom God is pleased to dwell. You are new creation in Christ. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are redeemed. You are saved. You are God's workmanship. You are His Craftsmanship, you are his poema, you are what he delights in making. He looks at you with joy and with pride. You are a citizen of heaven, you are complete in Christ. You are raised in Christ, you are beloved in Christ. These are things that you are, these are things that you are declared to be. And it's then and only then when we rest in this reality, when we marinate in this reality, are we ready to get our hands dirty? We fight our sin together with this grace. So Lord, we pray that I think in many ways we resonate with this church. We would have trouble I think having difficult conversations with people in our church who are making peace with destructive actions. Lord, in this passage we see the case of sexual immorality, but there are so many other ways in which we can make peace with sin, even things invisible to other people, like attitudes of heart. Would you make us into a sensitive people of God who are aware that we're not saved by our track record or by 
We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done, our perfect Passover sacrifice. Would that then make us a community that takes sin seriously, but because of that, takes grace all the more seriously? And Lord, would we display to the watching world how good it is to be in Christ? It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.